right, so we are on chapter 8, um, which is page 77 in your books. Um, they titled this God's Purpose of Grace. Um, <clears throat> unless you're super duper familiar with what Baptist language might be, that's just a word puzzle. It doesn't mean anything to you. God's Purpose of Grace. What does that really mean? So let's actually read the statement there, um, Article 5. And, and see if we can't make a little sense of what that actually means. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is uh, consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace but shall preserve to the persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring repro reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Okay, so let's begin to kind of break this down so that we understand it. Uh, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. This is about eternal security. This is about once saved, always saved. The fact that once we come to know Jesus as our Savior, we never don't know Him as our Savior. Um, so election is the gracious purpose of God. So election is God's choice. And so um, we know that there is there's, um, a lot of weight sometimes put on that word, um, so much so that <clears throat> in some cases people believe that there are people who want to be saved that can't be saved. There is no evidence of that anywhere in the Bible. There is no evidence of that in the apostolic teaching. There is no evidence of that in the early church. People that come to God, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they are saved. And God places election on them. Now, God knew they were going to be saved and had the election there, but we have to understand that God elects. And it's part of His gracious purpose. In other words, His purpose to save, His mission to save, his plan to save, according to which he regenerates. And these words should be a little familiar because we just went through them. Regeneration, that's the new life. Justifies, that's where God declares us as innocent in heaven. Sanctified, that's where through this life God makes us more and more like him. And glorification, when everything is finished. Not only the, the morality um, part of it is fixed, the human nature, the, the sin nature is removed, but also the new body. That is where we are completely made in the way that God always intended us to be. Okay, so it says it is consistent with the free agency of man. What that means is that we still have free will. We have that choice. Agency means responsibility. And so it is the responsibility of every man and woman to choose to follow Jesus Christ. We have to go down that road. We have to make that choice. It's not going to be made for us. 
there's nowhere in the Bible that says it's going to be made for us. There are a few examples of folks that, when you read it, it doesn't seem like they had much of a choice. But the way the story goes, they chose to follow God. So we don't know how it would have went if they didn't follow God. So you take Jonah, for example. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, a place he didn't want to go. And so he didn't go at first. He went and you know, sailed off in the opposite direction. Well, God didn't want to let him go that easy, and so he winds up in the belly of a fish. What if Jonah had not prayed to repent? What would have happened? We can't really answer that question. We don't know. What we know is that he did repent, and the fish did spit him out on dry land, and he did go to Nineveh and preach a half-hearted sermon. But it worked. And so what we know is that even though he wanted to disobey God, in the end, he did obey God. We look at, we look at people that, that say they were set apart in the womb. David indicates that God knew him in the womb. Uh, Jeremiah indicates that God knew him in the womb. Um, we think about John the Baptist, for example. That's a really good case. John the Baptist was born for a purpose. And even in the womb, he was already jumping for joy about Jesus, if we think about that. And so we, we tend to think that, that he had no choice in his life. That's not the way the story goes. The story doesn't tell us he had no choice. When we read Scripture, he went about the purpose of God. He was faithful to do the purpose of God. And so we don't know what it would have been if he had turned away. We don't know the stories of the people that turned away. They're not in Scripture. And so we don't know these things. So there definitely have been people who should have followed the Lord. God would have blessed them, but they simply did not. You take, for example, Saul. Saul was a king. And even though God did not want for Israel to have a king, he did anoint Saul. And for a while, he did bless Saul. But Saul was disobedient and he went away. And what we learn from that is that never was Saul the man that God really wanted to be king. Saul was a man that looked like a king. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was handsome. He looked like a warrior. He looked like what people wanted to be a king. And he served a very clear purpose in God's plan to show the people that when they were asking for a king, they were asking for the wrong thing. So we look at these examples of free will and we look at these examples of people that it seems predetermined but one thing i will say is this of those that it where it seems predetermined so you take you you put jeremiah and jonah and you put david and you put john the baptist and a few others and and i'm not even going to include jesus because we know that was a plan from the very beginning but but all of those folks that's still a very small sample size most people that are born 99.999 percent of them they don't make it into the pages of Scripture. They're not that kind of person, but yet they have to choose to follow Jesus. Some do, some don't. We understand that it's few that actually choose to follow Jesus, but those that do, it is part of their agency. It is part of their responsibility. So it says, and comprehends all the means. So this is, um, it is, so election, it is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. And so the election brings together, it, it, it puts in one cohesive unit all the, end, all the means that get us to the end. So all of these things that he mentioned, regeneration, sanctification, justification, glorification, all of that is working together in election. So 
It is a complete promise. God doesn't save some people and bring all of that into their lives. The grace, the mercy, the, the, the regeneration, the, the, the justification, sanctification, glorification, and then other people only get part of it. He never does that. He fully saves everyone. Okay, So that, that has been one heresy in the past that some people get a greater measure of grace, that people get a greater measure of salvation than others, and that's why some people you know, basically seem like they're on a determined path where they couldn't possibly veer off, and other people could veer off and walk away. So that has been a heresy in the past, but according to Baptist doctrine, it is not something that, that, that happens. We all receive the same grace. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness. This is important for us to remember. Your salvation is God's story. You know, there's a um, there's kind of a, a theme I think with a lot of people. They want to be humble, and so if you ask them, "Are you going to heaven?" Well, they'll say, "Well, I hope so. I sure hope so." Um, and they think that that's being humble. That they think that they're saying, "Well, you know, I'm trying. I'm doing my best." That is the pinnacle of arrogance to say, "I hope I'm going to heaven." Because if you hope you're going to heaven, that means that you believe that it's based on you. That you are the one that's going to work your way into heaven. The most humble possible answer, the most worshipful answer, is I know I'm going to heaven. And the reason for that is because your story is God's story. It is His glory. So when I say I know I'm going to heaven... I'm not basing it on my performance. I'm not basing it on my faithfulness. I'm basing it on God's promises. And so when I say I'm going to heaven, I'm saying God will keep his promises. God is going to be faithful no matter what I do in my life. And so that is God's glorious expression. That is God's glory revealed to the world in the work that he does in our lives. So it is God's sovereign goodness. So let's take those two words. Sovereign means that he has control. Goodness means that he has a good plan, a plan that is good for all of us. And so that is a display of his sovereign goodness um, and is infinitely wise and is. So, so this, this election, this election, because we're still in that thought process, this election is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. And so the election itself, God's plan and election, God's purpose and election, knows who's going to be saved, knows how things are going to play out, knows which ones are going to be faithful, which ones are not going to be faithful. God knows everything. His election knows everything. It's infinitely wise. It's infinitely holy. It is, it is unimpeachable. So when we think about God's election, you say, well, some people are getting saved and some people are not. Is that right? Yes, because God's choosing. God's doing it. Yes, it's human responsibility, but it's also God's plan. And so is it right? Yes. Is God's plan right? The answer is always yes, regardless of what we think, regardless of our perspective, because that's the main problem that we have is our perspective. Our point of view is, is a pinpoint in the plan of God. So we can only see one little part. We can't see everything. In fact, we walk around with a whole history, like our whole life behind us, and a lot of times we don't look at the patterns of what God has done in our lives 
before we form our opinion about what is happening now and going forward. And so not only do we have our own history that we typically tend to ignore, but we have all the context around us that we can't help but ignore. Because when something's going wrong in your life, that's where your focus is. That's why it doesn't need to depend on us. Because that's, that's human nature. It's part of all of us. I'm telling you that if I wake up tomorrow and I'm deathly ill, I'm not looking at the global context of things. I'm not looking at everything that's happened in my life. I'm deathly ill, and that's all I can focus on. But God's got a bigger perspective. He's got a bigger picture, and that is the picture that matters. So, he is infinitely wise. He is also infinitely holy. Whatever he's doing is right, even if we don't see it in that moment. And also, unchangeable. When we talk about unchangeable, People kind of want to focus on the negative. Well, that means that some people aren't going to get saved and there's nothing that can be done about that. Well, that's true, but that can be just as true based on their stubbornness as it is on God's plan. And we have to recognize that, that there are people who are stubborn that will never bend the knee to Jesus Christ, will never confess Him as their Lord and Savior. But also, it's unchangeable for the good. If God saved you, that can't be changed. That can't be taken back that can't be undone. And that's an important thing that we have to recognize is that it cannot be changed under any circumstances for any reasons whatsoever. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. We didn't earn our salvation. We didn't do anything to to deserve it. We certainly aren't doing anything that makes it stay. That's something that we have to recognize. We are not, when we do our acts of holiness... You read your Bible, you pray, you go to church, you, you witness to people, you, 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 you give generously. Whatever it is that you do, you might, you might have this idea of things that you're doing to maintain your salvation. That's not how that works. Salvation is always there regardless. It's always there whether you are faithful or whether you are unfaithful. The salvation is always there. It's unchangeable. It's not going anywhere. And that's not because of you. It's because of God. It's because of Him. And so what that means, when we think about it, that means that we have no reason whatsoever to boast or brag and say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm special, I'm chosen. That's not the attitude we ever need to take. You ever met somebody that loves to talk about themselves? Did you love to listen? None of us do. None of us want to hear somebody talk about themselves all the time. When it's about them all the time, it gets really boring really, really quickly because there's a couple of reasons why. One, nobody's that interesting to always be the topic. And two, most of the time you can see that a lot of what they're saying isn't even true. It's just their perception of themselves. You know, I mean, that's just that's one of the toughest things about being around people that, that are all about themselves is they have all these ideas. They're the people that are the humblest people in the world and they're proud to tell you how humble they are. That's the kind of folks you deal with with that. We can't be boastful. We have to truly be humble. Humbleness is recognizing that it's not about us. And it's not because of us. You didn't get your salvation because of who you are. It's not going to be maintained because of who you are. It is all for the glory of God. So the fact that you are saved, the fact that you now live a life that represents Jesus Christ on this earth, is for God's glory, not yours. And so when people do point the finger at us and say, but I thought you were a Christian, now I see that you're not perfect. 
we can say, that's right. And that is the amazing power of God that He can save even a sinner such as I. That He can take what is broken and He can still find a way to shine His glory through it. That's who we are. We are the broken and we must be humble because of it. All true believers endure to the end. That's a statement. There's scripture to back it up, but all true believers endure to the end. So, you know, I've been a Baptist all my life, and I've been around folks that aren't, and I've had people say, once saved, always saved, means that you can get saved and then go off and do whatever you want. It's not what that means. You basically have to ignore most of the Bible to think that that's what that means. But there's always this element of, I want to do something, or I want to make sure that people are under control, because what happens to people when you remove all the rules, or just the enforcement of the rules? So there's a township not so far from here that maybe don't have police anymore. Are the speed limits being kept anymore? Think about that. It's not that there are different people driving through town that don't know the rules or don't know the speed limit. It's that people think they're not going to get caught anymore. If there's no consequences, there's no obedience, right? So, so we know that about human nature. We know that. And it is 100% true, right? We know that. But that doesn't apply to salvation. That doesn't mean that there gets to be rules and laws and regulations about keeping your salvation just to make us behave. Because Jesus changes our sin nature. That's something that we've got to recognize. When we look at the book of Romans, as we were studying the book of Romans, it says that we have died to sin, that it no longer rules or reigns over us. So what that means, do you still have a sin nature? Yes, you are still prone to sin, but you are not a slave to sin anymore. Paul introduces himself as a slave to Christ. So yes, we might still sin, and yes, we might still fall into significant sin, but it is not our master anymore. And so he makes that change in us. So why, if a Christian is saved, no matter what they do for the rest of their life, why would they behave? Why would they live according to the law of God? Because Jesus is changing their hearts. He is changing who they are from the inside out, and it's going to show. And so that is why we can understand that, that, that all, believe, all true believers endure to the end. We believe that real faith is life-changing faith. We believe that real faith lasts for all eternity, that real faith will never let you be the same that you were before you were saved. That's what we believe about real faith. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace. So notice how they put all the weight and all the work and all the burden on God. Notice it again. Those whom God has accepted in Christ... So that's a whole full sentence there. God accepted us, and it was in Christ, understanding that Christ died for our sins, paid the price for our sins, and extended, personally extended that invitation. So we're, God's accepting us in Christ, and sanctified by His Spirit. So that means the Holy Spirit came to us, and dwelled us, and has begun working to make us like Him. So accepted in Christ, sanctified in the Spirit, will never fall away from the state of grace. The state of grace means that we are saved. And notice this, but shall persevere to the end. That's still tough language. Do you know what persevere means? It doesn't mean coast. It, it, it doesn't mean stagnate. 
It, it, it doesn't mean back up. It means press forward, but with effort. God's going to save you so much that He will have you working for Him. Not to earn your salvation or even to keep your salvation, but because He's changed you so much that that's where your desire and your heart is now. That's where your nature is leading you now, is to serve Him in, in whatever way He calls you. And so that's the power of salvation there, another power of salvation. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation. So notice how this does allow for that. Believers may fall into sin. Neglect and temptation. That is true. So how would we fall into sin through neglect? Well, if we don't spend time in the Word, if we don't spend time in prayer, if we don't work on our relationship with God, things are going to go bad for us. That's true with any other relationship that we have. If you say you have a dear friend, but you never call that friend, you never write that friend, you never see that friend, that relationship is going to fall into disrepair. And it's going to be awkward when you do get back with that person because what was there, the bond that was there has been tarnished. And so when we don't work on our relationship with God, it becomes easier and easier to drift away from Him. We drift away from Him mentally, you know, spiritually, emotionally, and it leads to sin. It really does. And then there's other times where it is a concerted attack from the enemy that causes us to sin. That temptation is real. Now I'll tell you, the, the attacks on believers, you think about Sunday morning. All of us sitting in here, we come to church on Sunday morning. How many of you have an easy breezy time to get here? Not a lot of hands are going up. There's always something, isn't it? It may be simple, and it may just be common everyday annoyances, or it may be something pretty big. You know, you wake up and, you know, some part of your body is hurting or isn't working the way it's supposed to work or, you know, anything like that. You know, I've got this thing with my neck. Sometimes I can't look right. Some people tell me I never look right, but sometimes I just can't move my head. And that's a kind of a big deal to be able to move your head, but sometimes it doesn't work. I believe that's an attack of the enemy. You know, I believe that Satan is trying to keep us away from where we can draw our strength, from where we can maintenance our relationship with him. So is that a temptation? In some ways, maybe, some ways not, but it's definitely an attack of the enemy. And there are other times where he's attacking us and he's, he's putting out bait for us sometimes just to make us jump on things. Um, if you're particularly passionate about something, and I'm talking about outside of the realm of spirituality, if you're particularly pa- passionate about something and it just seems like somebody just lobbed you up one so that you can jump on them and prove them wrong and show them how wrong they are, well, isn't that a temptation? I mean, that's a big temptation. Because then what that does is it puts you in a position of pride. It puts you in a position of showing off, technically of boasting, and and we don't need to be there. And there's a thousand other examples, but we are tempted on a day-to-day basis. Those are ways that we can fall into sin. Now, believers backslide, believers come back. You look at the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son came back. People do come and go. And I would say that most Christians spend some time in their lives not as close to God as they need to be. Um, uh, Brother Camp that spoke to us this Sunday, he pretty much said, if you're not as close to God as you've ever been, it's time to do business with God. And, And that's real and that's true because we are always supposed to be growing. But Christians can backslide. We can fall away. But at that point, we recognize that it's not about us, it's about God's grace. So it says, believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation. 
whereby we grieve the Spirit. So it's a pretty major consequence because we have to recognize the Spirit really doesn't dwell us. If we take the Spirit to places that He doesn't need to go, if we say things that the Spirit doesn't want us to say, if we do things the Spirit doesn't want us to do, we are grieving that relationship. Um, you know, it helps people somehow in different ways, different things. Um, in the classroom sometimes, kids say things, and I'm, I'm thinking, you shouldn't have said that. You just shouldn't have said that. And, and sometimes I'll ask them, if I've got a few minutes, I'll say, hey, would you have said that if your grandma was sitting here? And so far, to a man, they've said no. And so I think that that helps us to realize, you know what, there's some people we respect and we just won't do what we would maybe otherwise do if that person is there. And that's something that, that maybe, maybe it helps you if you think, would I do this in God's presence? Because we never leave God's presence. Um, and so when we do those things, we grieve the Spirit. When we fall into sin, we do grieve the Spirit. It says it impairs their graces and comforts. The relationship with God's not the same when we're living in sin. When we have fallen into sin, especially when we're kind of getting in that pattern where it is a sinful pattern and there's not, it does affect everything about us. But here's the big one. This is the big hitter. And brings reproach on the cause of Christ. When I entered into ministry, people said, well, you're going to be living in a glass house. You're going to be living in a fishbowl. Everybody's going to see everything. And they're going to judge you for everything that you do that's going to happen. That's true. But it's true for every believer. If you are in a workplace and people know you're a Christian, they will be watching. And they will call you out when they think you've done something wrong. They will absolutely do that. And that might be an opportunity to talk to that person but there will be a lot of other people that won't say a word. They'll just say, hmm, okay, I see how that is. And, and they won't say a word. They won't, they won't attack you, but they were watching. They were waiting for you to fall, and when you did, now they can check that off your list and say, well, I'm, not, I'm no different than them. That's reproach for the cause of Christ because that person needed to see Jesus, and instead they saw you. They saw me, and that's a problem. We don't need for them to see us. We need them to see the Lord. So, impair their graces, their comforts, bring reproach from the cause of Christ, and temporal judgments on themselves. This is something that's kind of been chewing at me because I heard somebody say something recently. You know how the Bible says, do not judge lest you be judged? Uh, and people are always using that as the one thing, you know, I'm this, and I'm turning into this, or I'm living this way, but the Bible says don't judge, so Christians just stay back. Do you know what judgment is? In the Bible, it's not a disapproving thought or word. In the Bible, judgment is punishment. That's what it is. And what do we call it when, you know, a, a, a jury issues a verdict? It, it is a judgment. And that judgment comes with penalties. So when Jesus said don't judge, I don't think he meant disapproving thought. I don't think he meant a disapproving word. I think ultimately what he meant was put punishment on people. That's not our place. That's not our job. God's the judge, not us. Okay, so when people say that, so what does it mean? So this, this here, going back to our topic tonight, temporal judgments on themselves. You familiar with a verse that says God chastens those that he loves? If we as believers stray from the path that God wants us on, God himself may send temporal or temporary earthly judgments upon us to try to straighten us back out. That is part of the work. Um, he talks about we're the, we're the vine and, 
and God's the vine dresser. So there are times where he is going to prune, he's going to challenge us, he's going to judge us, and he's going to bring us back into line. God will never give up on us, even if we have seemingly given up on him, okay? On themselves, yet, very last sentence, yet, they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So when we have drifted, and in some cases when we've lost all grip on the word of God, the will of God, the plan of God in our lives, yet still we are, per, we, we are held on to, not by our power, but by the grace of God. He holds us. He hangs on to us through faith unto salvation. Look at the verse that they give us here. My sheep hear my voice. Obviously the words of Jesus. I know them. They follow me. Are there people who claim to be Christians that aren't? Yes, absolutely. There are. There are Christians that are confused. And there are people that wear the name, but they don't know his voice. They're not his sheep. We know. We know the difference. There are people sitting under false teachers. Are all of those people lost? No. Some of them are just confused. Some of them really are confused. The false teacher is either lost or, well, he's lost, but he's intentionally probably doing something that he knows better than to do. So what we have to recognize is that we should know the actual voice of Jesus. Jesus says we'll know his voice. We'll know when he's preaching. We'll know when he's teaching. We'll know when it's his word over against when it is false teaching. We should recognize that. Um, you, you should have a, uh, enough knowledge of Scripture. You should have enough of, of the work of God in your life to where you can recognize something that's not true. You don't have to know the whole word of God, although that's a good idea. But even if you don't yet know the whole word of God, you probably know when things are said that aren't in the word of God. There may be a few that'll trick you every now and then. Cleanliness is next to godliness, not in the word of God. It, I mean, clean's good, right? We would all say clean is good. Clean is definitely preferable to dirty, but it's not in the Bible. That one might trick you. But when someone starts saying true heresy, true things that are against the word of God, you should recognize that. Sometimes we don't pay attention the way that we should. And I think that happens to people that are, you know, in a church where things are not being taught the right way. They just don't think about it. They don't pay enough attention. But we should know the voice of Jesus. When he speaks, we should know his voice. But not only know his voice, but follow him. That's what Jesus told the disciples to do. And we know that that wasn't just put a Jesus sticker on your car and call it a day. That was a life-changing event in their lives. Incidentally, I got a minute, I'll tell you about this. Amanda pointed it out, but uh, we were behind this car the other day and they had their license plate. And then beside it, they had this you know, very traditional looking picture of Jesus. And I couldn't read the words. She could. Um, it had Jesus peeking out behind the license plate saying, I saw that. I thought that was interesting. A little bit better than the Jesus fish as far as I'm concerned. Um, but anyway, so um, it's not just a one-time thought or commitment. It's certainly not a part-time. Following Jesus is a lifetime commitment. So Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. So the question might be, and, and this is a theoretical question, people might say, so if someone actually does say they become a Christian, they 
bow their heads, say the prayer, they do what they're supposed to do, they get baptized, they join a church, whatever, and then they just disappear and they never follow the Lord after that. Were they really saved? Well, ultimately that's between them and God. But I will say this verse remains. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. It seems to me like the people that God saves, those people follow Jesus. That doesn't mean that we never make a mistake, that we never sin. That doesn't even mean that we never backslide. Look at Peter. He denied Jesus. I mean, that's, that's pretty far down the list of things that, that, that he maybe shouldn't have been doing. But what we'll see is that he comes back. And what I would suggest to you is that people that are truly getting saved are following Jesus. Because that's what Jesus said. That may sound a little bold. And, and, and you may be sitting here saying, well, now wait just a minute. I got saved. And I wasn't really a very good Christian for several years after. That's true of me. I mean, I got saved when I was 13. I believe God was probably calling me to preach then, but I didn't hear it. I didn't really listen. Kind of went through the waves that teenagers go through. And it was a while later before I recognized God was calling me to preach. And, and, and that was when I began to take it serious. But, but even at that point, I can point to or look at certain events or certain time periods in my life where all of a sudden I got a lot more serious about God. And it was like steady growth or maybe even a lot of pretty steady, stagnant. And then all of a sudden there's this kind of plateau and you reach that and you move. And, and I've seen that in my life. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't saved when I was 13. That just means that God's journey or God's work with me was a, was a, was a process. It wasn't, a, it wasn't just one point. So I believe what Jesus says. People that become saved, they actually do follow him. He also says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, ever. He makes that sound pretty final, doesn't he? I mean, he is the word, so you would think he knows what words mean. He says they will never perish, ever. He didn't even use double negatives. I do that all the time. Jesus was clear with this. They will never perish, ever. Does that leave room for hypotheticals? Does that leave room for, but what if this, what if that? All the little scenarios that people, because I've had that a lot. I haven't had it recently because I don't get in these conversations as much. But, but when I was younger, I don't know if I attracted the, the, the fussers or whatever. But anyway, I used to get in these conversations all the time. And that was all they had was hypothetical this, hypothetical that. What if a person does follow Jesus for a certain period of time and then falls away? What if a person never follows Jesus? What if a person follows Jesus all their life, but the last thing they do is tell a lie or they do something sinful right before they die or they still saved? And had all these, they will never perish, ever. Jesus made that pretty clear. He made it abundantly clear. And then look what he says. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the position. You read all these Bible verses where it says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Jesus says you're in his hand. No one's snatching you out of his hand. That's pretty powerful to think about that. No one's going to snatch us out of Jesus' hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. So, yes, there are powers out there. There are forces, whether it be human forces, supernatural forces. There are things out there. Nothing is greater than God. 
God gave them to Jesus. Jesus is not letting them go. Them. Us. Jesus is not letting us go. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. When you are in Jesus, you are secure. It's not because of you. It's because of Him. So the most humble thing to do is say, Yes, I am saved now, and I am forevermore saved because of the grace of God, because of the work of Jesus, because of His promises, I can never lose my salvation. That may be saved, may be not saved, has been used as manipulation through the years. Religion in general has been used to manipulate people. Do this and you get this. Do this and you get this. Do this and you get this. That's where Christianity distanced itself from the pack of other religions because all we say, all the Bible teaches is believe on Jesus and you will be saved. That doesn't mean pay allegiance to this king. That doesn't mean do this service. That doesn't mean you know, follow these man-made guidelines. It just means follow Jesus. And you know, the thing about following Jesus is it's almost never going to look like we think it should look or what we want it to look like. Following Jesus might mean that your kids leave and go be missionaries. What parent's going to want that? I mean, we, we want people to be saved, but we want other people's kids to be the ones that have to go into the dangerous countries and tell them about Jesus, right? Following Jesus is going to look like a lot of different things. It's not manipulation, whereas most other forms of religion are. Jesus is asking us just to commit to him follow him not to follow the ways of the world not to follow man no one can take us out of the hand of jesus so once saved always saved eternal security god's purpose of grace that is, that is not a arrogant doctrine it is a humble doctrine we're putting it all on god because we know it can't be done by us questions comments criticisms all right well, let's have a word of prayer we'll be out of here heavenly father we thank you so much for the time to gather together again we thank you for your word and especially tonight as we look and we see that our salvation is something that we can't mess up we can't ruin it and i praise you for that because lord we can mess up almost anything and everything but you are faithful you are powerful. You never fail. We place our hope in you, and we know without a doubt that we are saved. Thank you, Lord, for that. I pray that that helps us as we go forward, that that's an encouragement, because we've got enough to worry about in this world, but we never have to worry about where we stand with you. If we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we bow before Him as our Lord and our King, then we are saved. I pray that we have done that, and I pray that that gives us the confidence to go out and live the life that You have called us to live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.